Welcome to Coog's Talk Stock from WSU Extension, a science-based podcast about animal agriculture for those that raise food animals, those that are interested in learning how, and those that want to learn more about where their food comes from. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Coog's Talk Stock. Happy Wednesday again, everyone. This is Natasha Moffitt-Hemmer, 4-H and Master Gardener Coordinator for WSU Extension in Okanagan County. Welcome back to Coog's Talk Stock Podcast with WSU Extension. Today's guest is one that we've had on our list to interview since the beginning of this podcast because she's so well known in the livestock industry as an expert. She has a DVM, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, PhD, is a professor emerita for WSU Livestock and Dairy Extension, and recently retired from the WSDA as an educational outreach specialist. Please welcome Dr. Susan Kerr to today's episode. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kerr. Happy to do so. And we're really excited to have you on here. I'm not lying when I said you have been on the list since the beginning. I think you were one of the first guests that we put down. So I'm really glad to have you on. So first things first, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience in the livestock industry that has led to such a fruitful career. I was one of those horse crazy kids and begged my dad for years to let me have a horse. And he compromised by letting me have a cat. And that was it. But I was in the 4-H Horseless Horse Project and the Veterinary Science Clubs. And then I went on to get a a Bachelor of Science degree in Animal Science and then a a DVM degree. And I was in private rural mixed practice for seven years. And it took me a while, but I finally realized that I wasn't put on this earth to give people a bill for helping them with their animals. So I decided to retool and I went to Kansas State and got a Ph.D. in education And then I uh, started a 17-year career as uh, extension director in Klickitat County in south-central Washington. And then the last five years with WSU, I was in Mount Vernon as the Northwest uh, Regional Livestock and Dairy Extension Specialist. That's awesome. I really connect with your history because... I went to school planning to become a veterinarian, ended up getting a master's and going into extension, and now I'm going into education. So I really align with the path that you've taken and love to hear about it. So you're really, you're going to teach us a little bit about biosecurity today. Um, It's really an essential part of keeping our livestock healthy, but what exactly is biosecurity? I think it's important to realize that biosecurity is an active thing. It's actions we take to control or prevent the spread of disease, either the entry of a disease onto a farm or the control of the spread of the disease on the farm, but it's actions. Yeah, not just a word. It's what we are actively doing to protect our animals. And I I think that it gets kind of a bad rap because it's kind of a scary word. It's not one that's super inviting or friendly for people to use. But really, it's just us trying to keep our animals healthy, which we all do on a daily basis as livestock producers. So why is it important for us to care about biosecurity? I think actually everyone should care about biosecurity because biosecurity is the hallmark of animal welfare which means we're preventing animal disease in the first place. We're preventing animal illness and suffering and pain and loss and death. So everyone should care about that, even if you uh, are a vegan or, or have no animals. Also, as consumers, we should care about biosecurity because biosecurity helps um, 
prevent animal loss, as I mentioned, and so it helps keep our food costs down. Americans really demand low-cost, healthy food, and and having farmers uh, really be devoted to biosecurity helps keep their animal healthy. And also it addresses farm profitability. Obviously, the more sick or dying animals you have, the less uh, profitable your farm's going to be. So those are all important reasons to care about biosecurity. Absolutely. We all love our animals as livestock producers, and we would never want them to die from disease. But we also have to think about that that cost. And I also wanted to say uh, that agriculture is a critical part, part of many, many communities and should... Um, some serious disease be affecting livestock in the area, there's a ripple effect that can affect many other jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Agriculture is one the top employer in the United States from all the different ag industries we have. So when one part of ag fails, we lose a lot of job security there for a lot of different people. So we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about biosecurity now. What are some of the diseases in particular that we're concerned about controlling in livestock via our biosecurity practices? Well, I think I can come up with one for each of our major livestock and poultry (laughs) species. Uh, African swine fever is running rampant throughout the world. We do not have it in this country, but we are consistently and constantly worried about it. It's a devastating disease for swine health, and it's been estimated that that this current outbreak that's in Europe and Asia has killed 25% of the world's swine population. Holy cow. It's really destroyed or disrupted some uh, food chains and and, uh, food security in some countries. And we're really concerned about that here. And there's not an effective vaccine yet for that. Uh, For cattle and and actually any cloven-hooved animal, foot and mouth disease is a perpetual concern for our country. We haven't had that for decades here, and it's a highly transmissible disease that doesn't really cause uh, a lot of death, but it causes a lot of, of ulcers and, and lameness, and animals don't eat and suffer. As we suffer. And as we saw through the, the COVID pandemic, there's this whole um, very tightly integrated um, production to processing chain. And should animals be sick and be held up, it affects everything else down the line as well. As people in Washington know, we've also had a recent incursion of a foreign animal disease of rabbits. Rabbit hemorrhagic disease is now what's called um, regionally endemic, meaning it's established here and it's no longer a foreign animal disease in those areas. Fortunately, we haven't had any diagnosed or, or, or identified cases in Washington since very early 2020, but the disease is spreading to about 11 other western states. High path avian influenza is a perpetual concern for our poultry industry. Uh, chickens are highly susceptible to that, and as are turkeys. And being here on the coast and part of a flyway of uh, waterfowl that migrate, Washington is is on the cusp all, always of being at the beginning of one of those outbreaks. We test for that monthly at every uh, auction throughout the United States that sells birds. And we don't have any cases right now, but we have to keep monitoring because this can um, put our billions of dollars of value of uh, poultry at risk. Yeah, it would be absolutely devastating if we had something like that come to Washington. 
And the case we did have, cases, I think it was 2014 of those, I think was one commercial flock, but the others were all backyard flocks. So it's, even if you're small, doesn't mean you're off the hook with biosecurity and protecting your birds. Yeah, even if you only have one animal, it's still important to practice these biosecurity practices, especially when you're buying and selling to other people. Absolutely. So while we're talking about these diseases that we're really trying to prevent using biosecurity, I'm curious how biosecurity relates to zoonotic diseases. Well, zoonotic diseases are just one particular type of disease. Those are diseases that can spread between animals and people, and they can spread either way. It's interesting to note that cases of tuberculosis in animals are more common now from a human source. Uh, that's that's a, a change that's taken place over time. We're having very few cases of human cases from animals. It's more the other way around. So zoonotic um, diseases uh, we address those through good biosecurity as well. And those are extra important because not only do they affect our animals, but they could affect us as people. And we don't want diseases spreading through both us and our animals. That would be very difficult to handle. Correct. So can you mention some of the steps that we can actively take while practicing biosecurity to protect our livestock? Sure. Something that's effective against uh, for all species is to vaccinate against diseases of concern and speak with your local veterinarian about what diseases are of concern in your area and for what your animals are at risk. And um, purchase animals from trustworthy sources. Check reputations. Again, ask your vet about where they might get an animal from. Someone with a good reputation, someone with healthy animals, low-risk sources, and someone willing to take animals back if they develop signs of illness. Uh, quarantine new purchases uh, or animals returning from a show or some sale or something. Put them in a, a separate area for 30 days and watch them closely every day for signs of illness like a runny nose or diarrhea or coughing or something. And use separate clothing and footwear and equipment for that animal and separate equipment for your home herd. That's a, it's a really crucial thing to do is quarantine those herd additions. And any animals that are sick that you notice because you're checking your animals daily, isolate and either treat or cull sick animals. Do that promptly. Get them in your hospital area and, and either remove them from your herd or treat them. Washing your hands frequently is very important as we learned through COVID. And you can set up a portable hand washing station any place on your farm. You need to learn how to clean and disinfect properly. Cleaning means remove the big chunks from your footwear, for example, or, or cages or, or shovels, um, and then clean with soap and water, rinse well, and then apply a disinfectant for at the right concentration for the right amount of time and let it dry. The most biosecure farms have no visitor policies, meaning nobody comes on the, the farm that doesn't have to be there. And the people that do have to be there have a designated parking area and they, they're either provided footwear or booties or uh, required to bring clean footwear with them. And you have designated clothing and footwear for your farm. And then you have different footwear in your home and different footwear uh, for street clothing and street wear. Your, where your feet are and go is really important. 
And it's also a good idea to have controlled uh, traffic patterns on your farm. There's no reason for most people to drive all around on your farm, to have, have a place where the feed guy delivers, and then that's all that they do. They have a turnaround area, but they don't need to drive all around where the livestock are or something like that. Gates and fences are, are ways to control traffic on your farm and to keep different groups of animals away from each other and protect them make distance between neighboring animals, for example. And then think about things like vermin, rats and mice, flies, wildlife, and birds. Try to control them because their their little feet just can take things everywhere. It's one way that the rabbit hemorrhagic disease can move around is even through flies. That virus, uh, they're just passive, uh, passively moved on these different species. So control those vermin, flies, and wildlife on your farm as well. There's a lot of different things that we can do to uh, make sure that our biosecurity is in check for our animals. And I appreciate you going through all of that. So are there things that we can do other than being very clean and making sure we're sanitizing and using different tools and things that goes towards biosecurity, like um, making sure that our animals are eating proper nutrition or have proper environment or are just overall healthy in other ways? Right. That's the underpinning of biosecurity is making sure animals have that good, strong foundation of health with good air quality, uh, good balanced diet, and all animals are getting the proper food that they need, and they're not uh, living in mud and uh, under a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. Stress stress uh, raises cortisol level, natural steroid in our bodies, and that suppresses our immune system. So stress pretty much leads to disease. Yeah, absolutely. And humans too. You see a lot of the human diseases that are related Mm -hmm. to stress. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same for the animals that we're raising. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned mentioned, uh, cleaning and disinfecting. That is a huge issue. um, And and it's really important to understand you have to clean things first before you can disinfect. That's why having a, a foot bath outside of a barn and just tromping through it uh, makes me uh, just uh, shiver because all you do, you haven't washed your boots before you put them in there. So you've dumped a lot of dirt and mud and gunk in there and you didn't have the proper contact time. So it, it's a false sense of security to have a foot bath that's not used properly. Especially when most of those disinfectants that are in the foot baths sold over the counter aren't really strong enough to kill everything you need in that quick of a time. <laughs> right. And and uh, very few of them also are able to work through organic matter, meaning manure and, and mud and dirt and so on. Mm-hmm. So hose yourself off before you disinfect. Do both. And one of the things that I like to remind people of when practicing biosecurity is making sure to find those places that you wouldn't necessarily think of, like your truck tires and your trailers and your gate panels that you're using or your hog boards. Anything that an animal touches or gets near or is exposed to should be cleaned and sanitized before being exposed to animals that are of a different group. Mm -hmm. So with all of these different practices, do you think biosecurity is an expensive management tool that we have? Some steps are very inexpensive, like washing your hands, having uh, designated footwear for farm versus home versus off farm, uh, having a all uh, having a closed herd policy where you don't allow visitors and you don't go to shows 
And um, so policies are inexpensive. You have a designated parking area if you do have visitors. You have a visitor log. All those things are very inexpensive. And then you have some meeting expensive things like uh, cleaning and disinfecting and vaccinating and um, gates and fences and so on. And then you have the really expensive things like uh, a shower in and shower out facility, which is just standard for commercial poultry and swine operations. People shower when they get there and they shower when they leave. And then vehicle washes also are uh, a lot more of those have been put in now because of uh, the concerns about uh, avian influenza and um, uh, African swine fever. And some fencing systems obviously can be quite expensive. So it, it really varies. And uh, what's interesting is, though, you can get a lot of bang for your buck with some of these low-cost steps, um, especially f dressing footwear and your hands. Yeah, and making sure that people you have working around the animals have not been in contact with other groups of animals recently, especially sick ones. So even if you don't have shower in, shower out, you can make sure they haven't been exposed to anything that they could be bringing in. Right. And if you have employees, really, it's important that they not have the same species of animals at home that they're working with on your farm. Yeah, absolutely. What are some practices that, and we've kind of touched on this, but what are some main practices that are red flags to you that could compromise a farmer ranch's biosecurity? A big one is taking animals to shows or, or exhibitions and then bringing them home and just putting them right back in where the herd or flock. They they just went, basically they just went to nursery school, swapped snotty noses with all the other kids and then came home and we and so all know we, daycares are just <laughs> germ-filled factories right and so, so think of that you have animals from all over they're going to convene and then they're going to go back home and those poor animals at home uh, are just sitting ducks for whatever they, these other animals picked up at a fair uh, and also not cleaning cages or pens uh, i was talking to someone in uh, 4-h recently and she says she she thinks we're making good headway in getting kids to clean their cages better. And not only for how it looks for the public, but just as a disease control situation. Yeah, and, that's essential. Yep. And again, not quarantining new purchases. That's a big, uh, a big no-no for disease. If you're getting an animal from a quality breeder, they should be willing to take uh, a sick animal back or replace something that, that is ill. So quarantine them and watch them every day for signs of illness. Uh, one that seems harmless, but actually can have repercussions is sometimes people will, or kids will have um, market guilts. Uh, it's a, it's a, a young sow that's going to go to market instead of a, a market hog. It's a female. And because for whatever reason, she's not a good breeding prospect, but she does really well at the fair and somebody decides to buy her and take her home as a breeding animal. That's a really bad idea. Same with market heifers or market ewe lambs or market dolings. There's some reason that animal was going to be a market animal, even though they might have gotten the grand champ for how they look. Uh, uh, that's not an animal to buy and take home because they just collected a lot of diseases at the fair. Yeah, not not the breeding stock that are being shown as breeding animals, Correct. but the ones Correct. that are being shown as market animals that are right. supposed to be used for food, for meat consumption. There's right. a reason they're not in that breeding category. Yeah, that's considered a terminal project and they really just need to go then off to processing. 
Fortunately, I think most fairs prevent that. Most fairs are terminal and don't allow the purchasing of animals for breeding outside of the breeding stock. Some sometimes there are um, private treaty sales though, where That's someone true. will offer somebody a, a, a pretty penny for whatever reason, and 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 then when the fair's over, they take it home. Another. Uh, big no-no is sharing breeding males. That's a really good way to swap a whole lot of diseases with a, a buck or a, a ram or a, a, a bull that is just kind of the neighborhood breeding male and uh, can be spreading diseases willy-nilly. And then you, you really need to do some pre-purchase uh, testing of animals about diseases of concern. Yeah, especially in those breeding stock because they're going to be coming in contact with so many other animals. Bulls are going to cover so many cows and heifers. They're going to spread disease like crazy if they're carrying something. So how do we know as animal producers if our biosecurity plan is working? I like to think of it as your farm is very boring. Uh, You only have your routine chores, um, very few calls to the vet. There's no animals in the treatment pens, not a lot of medications in the cabinet. And all of that means more money in your pocket. I love that. That's such a good way to look at it. If if you're bored at work and all of your animals are healthy, then your biosecurity is working. Right. Right. Uh, So I know one of the most common things that uh, livestock producers know, a common incident that livestock producers know about was the 2001 foot and mouth disease breakout in the UK. What were some of the lessons that we learned from that? Well, we learned again, like I mentioned, how interconnected agriculture is to all the other industries and the huge ripple effect such an outbreak can have to an entire country involving feed providers, uh, processing plants, tourism, transportation, all the tax revenue that goes to the government, indemnity. And actually, there were 80 suicides that were directly related to that outbreak. So people oh my. people were just devastated by the loss of their animals, and that was their life. They were often elderly, and the animals were everything to them, and they just saw no other life for themselves. Um, we, we The outbreak was suspected to have started from the illegal importation of either raw or improperly cooked meat that people ate but then didn't eat all of, and it went into garbage, quote-unquote garbage, which means plate waste that contains meat. That was fed to swine. Swine are omnivores, and we can give them a lot of different things to eat, but that was fed to swine, and then those um, animals were taken to a livestock market, and then they were dispersed throughout the country. So those swines are, swine are considered um, foot-and-mouth disease amplifiers, and they then at the livestock market, spread the disease to sheep or other animals at the market, and the disease went everywhere in the UK. And that's an example of why we want to discontinue garbage feeding to swine. About 26, or about equally divided of states that allow feeding of garbage to swine and those that don't. And again, I mean garbage is defined as contains poultry, meat, or fish. We just... uh, and doesn't involve feeding vegetables or or um, waste dairy or waste bakery items. Those are all still allowable. It's anything that has or could contact meat. We want to try to dis, uh, discontinue that uh, in Washington. There's a move afoot to get that done. 
Yeah, that and that just reminds me of a time where I was watching a TV show with my family and they were showing us that they were feeding pigs in Nevada and surrounding areas um, leftovers from buffets <laughs> from Las Vegas. And they my family thought it was a great idea. They thought it was such an efficient way to feed them. They were using leftovers. And I was horrified knowing that the garbage feeding can just spread disease like crazy. So it's kind of not an instinctual thing because when you think about it, it's a great idea to use leftovers and use them in a useful way. But it's really a risky thing to do with your animals. It is allowable and safe as long as you boil, meaning 212 degrees, boil everything for 30 minutes before feeding. And that involve, that means you're really monitoring this process well. And you, in Washington, you'd have to get a license and pay a fee. Uh, and and again, that, that will kill the any disease agents that are in there. And then it's legal. But a lot of people aren't going to know that or even do it properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's too risky for me personally. <laughs> as So as we move down to the end of this discussion, if there's one main message to our listeners about biosecurity that you could convey, what would it be? Well, I'm going to be very specific. I probably should go big picture, but I'm going to go little picture. You can't disinfect something without cleaning it first. You just can't throw bleach on something and consider it clean. You've got to get something soap and water clean. We're not just talking about spraying it with water. You spray with water or use a brush to get the big stuff off. And then you've got to soap and water it clean. So it's clean enough to eat off of, no visible dirt at all. And then you can disinfect. And you, for each disinfectant, it'll tell you how to make it up properly. So what concentration to use and how long it needs to be applied to be effective. Many of them say 10 minutes. When you're tromping through a foot bath, that's not 10 minutes, is it? Mm-mm. Barely 10 seconds, I think. Um, I And one thing that I remember when you mentioned that, too, is making sure you're checking the temperatures of your water with the disinfectant you're using because bleach, it doesn't work. It's deactivated in hot water. And so you have to make sure to use cold water with bleach to make it actually work. So making sure you're following little details like that to make sure the disinfectant is actually actually working when you're using it. And each batch actually doesn't last that long either. You need to make up new batches quite often. Yeah. Yeah, those are all really important things to think about. So finally, we're down to the bottom. What are some great resources for people who want to learn more about biosecurity? And as always, I'll post these in our show notes. Okay. I didn't do websites. I just did web names, website names, because all the .orgs and .thises and .thats are hard to do on a podcast. But if you do a web search for (laughs) Healthy Farms, Healthy Agriculture, all one phrase, it'll take you to... uh, terrific website about biosecurity created by a five-year-long USDA grant overseen by the University of Vermont that I served on. And on that page, you can find, oh, it's just a myriad of resources for producers, for youth, for anyone. And there are, there are some learning modules on there you can go through for youth to, to learn about all the different aspects of biosecurity. It's just a great site. There's also called uh, the Center for Food Safety and Public Health. That's an Iowa State University site that's fabulous, all about animal diseases and public health and food safety and disease prevention. 
has a lot of great pictures and is a really good source of information on disinfectants and disinfecting. And then also the USDA APHIS site, APHIS is Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. Uh, and they have biosecurity resources for all species, but uh, particularly for poultry. Lots of good poultry resources. Awesome. And I'm also going to put a plug in for all of the quality assurance programs that are out there because they talk about biosecurity, uh, beef quality, pork quality, the YQCA program that we do with our 4-H and FFA kids, youth for the quality care of animals. All of those really touch on biosecurity a lot because it's such a big thing to think about when you're producing animals. So those are also all really good resources for biosecurity. Well, Susan, if you don't have anything else for us, we're going to say goodbye and thank you so much for joining us. I'm just really ecstatic to finally have you on. You're welcome. I hope people found it valuable and I hope everybody learned at least one new thing. Thank you for listening to the Cougs Talk Stock podcast brought to you by Washington State University Extension. You can review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Cougs Talk Stock, where the additional resources from our podcasts are linked. Let us know if you have any burning questions or suggestions at CougsTalkStock at wsu.edu. This podcast is brought to you by Hannah Browse, Sarah Drager, Dr. Don Llewellyn, and Natasha Moffat-Hemmer, and is produced by Connors Communications at Washington State University. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.